you have your copies through the of of God's Word, we are going to continue our walk through the book of Acts with rather a large section. So it's almost a whole page in your Bible if you have the right Bible. It's almost an entire page. Those of you who don't have the right Bible, it might be a little different. Picking up in verse 12, Jesus has just ascended. Did I say, oh, verse 12, yeah. In the first section, Jesus has just ascended, and angels dressed in dazzling white told him to go back to Jerusalem and stop staring at the sky. Verse 12, And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went into the upper room where they were staying that is, Peter and John's and James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, which, take a good look at that. That is the last time you will ever see the mother of Jesus mentioned in the Word of God. Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time. And with the brothers of Jesus Christ, his half-brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brother and gathering about 120 people in the upper room. And he said, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness in falling headlong he burst open in the middle of all in the middle and all of his intestines gushed out how many here feel like that's a little tmi luke the physician likes to give us some internal details there pun intended it's actually a very funny pun if you had the right bible And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language the field was called Hekeldama, that is, a field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let the homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time of the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning at the baptism of John the Baptist until the day Jesus was taken up from our midst, one of these must become a witness or an apostle with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas and also called the Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Show us which one of these The two you have chosen to occupy the ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned along to go to his own place, which is a place unlike the place we are going, because he is the son of destruction. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the last time we see lots uh, given in the the United States, definitely within the United States. Last time in the word of God, because next chapter... The indwelling of the Holy Spirit comes. With that, let's ask God's blessing and we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you on this hot day that we have the privilege to meet together in a cool room, to study your word freely as a church with very, very little price to pay. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and around the world, whether it be in China, Russia, or Afghanistan. Lord, protect them. We pray that you, that you would be glorified. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit teach us your word. Lord, I pray that I would become nothing. My prayer is this morning that I would become nothing, and that you would be elevated. And Father, may our our hearing of the Word of God be more than just something that, that gives us some information we didn't have before we came in here, but that it would change our lives. 
That we would love one another and then love our community and love our world with your love, not man's. And Father, I pray these things and I ask them in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. Have you ever had the walk of your life? The walk of your life. I remember the first time I took a walk with my wife Amy, which was around January 23, 1993. I couldn't believe my luck. How is it that a guy that has never had a girlfriend come to the place where he is walking with the woman of his dreams? She was pretty. I was not. Thank you. She was pretty. I was not. She was an A student. Miss Lovell, you're here, right? I'm my eighth grade science teacher. I was not. I was a solid, and I mean solid, D plus C student, all right? But it was solid. I kept it there. She was the oldest in her family. I was the youngest. She always had someone who liked her. I never had anyone who liked me. My feet never touched the ground. Those first few months and years, every time I introduced Amy as my girlfriend or my fiancé or my wife, people thought I was joking. And I'm over it. doesn't bother me anymore. It's not important that it hurt me. It's not important that it hurt me. But I think you should know it, all right? But my point is, how does this awkward-looking, never-girlfriend-having, socially insecure kid find himself in such a privileged position? With that in mind, imagine the disciples walking back from the Mount of Olives. As they have just watched the resurrected Lord ascend to heaven, tell you to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, have two angels dressed in dazzling white dismiss the service, and, and then just, just, just a few days earlier, a few years earlier, you were nothing more than social outcasts, blue collar workers from the nowhereville of Galilee who would give you a second glance. And now they have a very special relationship and position with the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. Their feet must have never touched the ground. So with that in mind, with that walk of their lifetime, going back to Jerusalem from becoming terrorists and fishermen and tax collectors from Galilee, now apostles of the living God heading to Jerusalem, they they head back and we find ourselves in this text. And they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olive Light, which was in Jerusalem, seven days' journey away. When they had entered into the city, they went into the upstairs. Maybe it was the same place. We don't know. But it was rather large because 120 people could fit into that. That is Peter, James, John, all these names here, picking up at that period, all they were continually devoting themselves to one mind of prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus we won't hear from anymore and his brothers who once thought he was nuts 120 people in the room now the phrase here a sabbath day's journey this does not mean that this took place on the sabbath in fact most scholars would agree that it was likely not the sabbath at this time the mishnah required that no one walk more than three quarters of a mile on Sabbath day, which incidentally is exactly how far the tents of Israel were allowed to be away from the tabernacle when they would camp in the wilderness. That's where they drew this number from. This is Luke's way of merely giving a, a, an approximate measurement. It would be as though we said, you know what? We took a walk and we walked a country mile. What is a country mile? We really don't know, but we understand, you know, a a gauge of it. That's what he's talking here. About a Sabbath day's journey. A little less than a mile. Then he says this, And they were all continually devoting themselves. The first thing I want to bring up here is that they are all gathering together faithfully for one reason. And that is whether he or she had experienced a dramatic change in their hearts because of their personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Here's the first question. How about you? Has your personal encounter with Jesus Christ transformed your life? 
Is your life dramatically different? Is your paradigm by which you measure things completely different than they were before you knew Jesus Christ? Is your life dramatically changed? Or or are we just engaged in some sort of cultural waiting in a small pool where we all just kind of do our own thing? When you have truly met Christ... In fact, Dave, Pastor Dave talked about this this morning. When you have truly met Christ, you want to be of others who have truly met Christ as well. In fact, young people, if I could just take a moment. If you truly know and love Jesus Christ, the thought of dating and marrying someone who is not should absolutely disinterest you. These men and women have almost nothing in common, by the way. Almost nothing in common with each other, except that they shared their encounter with the risen Lord in common. Have you ever heard or said the words or heard the words spoken, I have nothing in common with that church. I have nothing in common with the people at that church. Or nothing in common with that small group Bible study. That really ought to sound an alarm just a little bit in our lives. It might tell us that we are engaged in a social or or cultural Christianity rather than an actual walk within the body of Christ. It's not about what hobbies do we share in common, but do we share Jesus Christ? I want you to think for a moment. I don't have a lot in common with Pastor Jason. I do not have a lot in common. I like landscaping, construction, building, fishing, watching documentaries, and good old-fashioned action suspense movies, and, and once in a while dance to Justin Timberlake to Can't Stop That Feeling, all right? That's kind of where I live my, my pastime. Pastor Jason likes fine arts. <laughs> he likes to stare at pictures. He likes fine arts. He likes Broadway theater. He can't change a light bulb to save his life. His fashion style. His fashion style. I, I can't. I can't even talk about it, all right? All I can say is this. Thank goodness for Tracy. Amen? How many here are thankful for the, for the ministry that Tracy has brought into Pastor Jason's life? Amen? What a wonderful asset to our family here. And every time I go to Pastor Jason's event, all he does is challenge me. He challenges me to grow. And I'm telling you right now, it's annoying and it's inappropriate, all right? No, I mean, he literally will challenge me and, 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 and push me in areas that I'm, maybe I don't even want to look at. But all of that evaporates with the consuming heat of the one thing that we share in common, and that one thing is Jesus Christ. I love the talks that Pastor Jason and I have. I love how he challenges me. Maybe not at the moment. How many here realize that in the moment you're being challenged, you don't like it that much? Can I get a witness at all? But but if you are in Christ, you want that accountability. You want to be challenged to think outside of yourself. I love how he challenges me. I love that he thinks different from me. I love that he gives me feedback. I love that he is not an echo chamber because there is no growth in surrounding yourself with a bunch of people who always agree with you. Can I get a witness to that at all? How many are thankful? Baptists never have that problem. Amen? We just voted 100% on Pastor Dave. How many here are waiting for the hammer to fall? Anyone at all? Baptists agreeing. There's no growth in echo chambers. But here he is. He is my brother in Jesus Christ. And our unity is based on Christ. It's not based on the Dodgers. It's not based on politics or vaccination status or whether or not we're wearing matching outfits. How many would like to see that? Matching outfits. But on Christ. Here's something I just want to challenge your thoughts with. In a very academized Christian culture of Grand Rapids, saturated within the culture of Western America, that is quickly deteriorating, but we're very saturated in it. If you and I, and I'll stick with me, okay? If I was able to surround myself with 120, that's how many are in this room, 120 men and women who all share the same things I like, 
All of them love construction and, 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 and building things and going for walks and hiking and, 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 and root for the Michigan Wolverines because they know Christ, all right? If, we all, if I got together with 120 men and women who share all the same things, and there's nothing wrong with having something in common, but I did not speak of or encourage or challenge one another in Jesus Christ, then I have not been to church. Let me push that a little further. If you come into this building just on time, and you sit in that chair, and you soak up a message, and then there's a closing prayer, and you are out the door and to the car and go away, and you haven't talked to anyone and engaged in a conversation about Jesus Christ or how your walk is going with Him or, or dialogue about the sermon or prayer requests, if you are not engaged in any kind of relational exchange that isn't centered around Christ, I want you to grab this highly religious Grand Rapids culture. You haven't attended church. Amen? Church is the assembly of the believers. Encouraging and exhorting and, and pushing each other unto good works. Church is not a sermon. Church is not an hour. Church is not small talk. It is biblical community centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, when is the last time you've been to church? For some of us, we may have come months and months and years, and we haven't been to church yet. And if you think for a moment that the 120 men and women in this room right now have no differences, and differences that come up from time to time, you would be wrong. Scripture tells us that they had disagreements, strong conflicts, but they were able to have intimate, committed fellowship even in those differences because they dedicated themselves to prayer and what they shared in common, Jesus Christ. In fact, you see it right here. With one mind in prayer. These strong-willed men and women. All right? The kind who argued over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. These are the men meeting together. They refused to wash each other's feet in the upper room. You have, you have men and you have women. You have rich, you have poor. You have a tax collector for Rome and a terrorist against Rome. You have fishermen, you have businessmen. You have the rich, the poor, the, the chaste, the unchaste. Let me say it a different way. The moral and the immoral. And all of them, with all those differences, share one mind. Which literally means, when you translate it, means this. Of one heart and one mind. Now that's not because they, they conform to one another and they all share the same things in common. This word appears 11 times in the New Testament. One heart and one mind. 11 times in the entire 27 canonical books of the New Testament. And 10 of them are found in this book. In the beginning of the church. So here's a question. Oh, by the way, here's some questions. What would happen to our church? What would happen to our church and our unity? Would lover, would, would lover, <laughs> would love cover a multitude of sins? What if we did this? What if every one of us dedicated to pray before we even got here? What if before we got into the car, we held hands with a loved one or maybe got on your knees by yourself and prayed, Lord, I'm heading to your church. Help me to be a blessing. Help me to have, Pastor Dave, where are you, Pastor Dave? Help me to have a pew ministry where I invest in those who are around me. Help me not to be make things all about me. And, let, and Lord, bring unity through my heart. And when you got here and all these annoying Baptists came up to you, you could love them. Amen? And I'm one of them. What if every one of us in this room made a commitment right now that we would pray before we got to church that we would be church? Now, with that in mind, these are a very big, they were a diverse group acting as one. And what we see here are the building blocks of a strong, united church. 
Unity in the midst of diversity is accomplished through prayer and an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ. Let me just bring this application up. It is near impossible. It is near impossible to remain angry or divided against a person who you pray for or pray with. I dare you to stay angry at someone you pray for or pray with. Now, I'm not talking imprecatory prayers like David did. Lord, crush my enemy. All right, I'm not talking about those prayers. I'm talking about prayers of repentance, growth, blessing, transformation, God's will. Whenever I do conflict resolution with two different parties, whether it's a husband and a wife or, or two different people in the church or outside of the church, whenever I do conflict resolution with two believers, my first question is, how often do you pray for this person? I've literally had two people in my office, one on the, by the way, 90% of communication is what? Talk to me. Nonverbal. When you have two people come, especially if they're married, all right, and they come in, and one sits at this couch, at this end, and the other one doesn't even sit on the same couch. They sit on the other couch as far away as you possibly can. And I look at them and I say, when is the last time you prayed for this other person? Usually the answer is little to none. And the first thing we'll do is say, well, why don't we just pray for one another right now. And we're just not going to pray generically. You know, Joe Schmo, I want you to pray for Susie. Susie, I want you to pray for Joe. Or whoever the names are. You would not believe the walls that begin to crumble. Who here do you have broken fellowship with? Who here annoys you? Or outside these walls? Are you praying for them? Did you know... That at every important turning point in the entire books of Act, book of Acts, we find the mention of prayer. Every time there's an important moment in Acts, we find prayer. We see in Acts 1, 8, 9, 10, uh, uh, 13, and multiple verses in between. It's one of the reasons we made prayer a large theme before we voted on Pastor Dave and Krista. But before we voted for Pastor Dave, we, we made a very serious point to make sure that we were praying because I think if we're all honest, we were really nervous about Dave. Amen? I mean, Krista, yeah, that's an easy vote, but Dave? No, we prayed. Did you know that prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts? And this is the prenatal church. 31 times in the book of Acts and 20 out of 28 chapters. Now, I want you to grab this. The prenatal church, if you will, because it's about to be birthed out, literally, next chapter, and we know that we're just days away, is already showing what the New Testament will soon unpack when the church is born. The prenatal church shows us the most basic elements of what we are, we are to be as a church today. Listen to this. They are operating in obedience to Christ. They are gathered together. They're seeking the Lord in prayer. They're studying the Scriptures Christologically to carry out God's primary mission, which is to proclaim the repentance of sins uh, uh, to, to those who need it. This is what they were unified on, by the way. They were not unified on politics or, or region or or other things. They are unified in these things. In fact, this is what they're praying about. And not only are they praying about it fervently in one mind and with one heart, but soon they're going to see an answer to prayer and literally 3,000 people will accept Christ in one day. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe the church is so impotent sometimes because we're not praying and harnessing the power of prayer. Our God can do amazing things if we would believe it. Amen? Oh, to pray with one another. Now grab this. And then while they're up there, 120 people in a non-air-conditioned room in the Middle East. How many here are thankful for that right now? You know what? Let's shut the air down right now so that we can just put ourselves in that room. Please don't. While they're meeting during that final week, somewhere in that prenatal week, Peter decides to stand up and talk about what everyone else is thinking about. There is a giant elephant in the room. 
Now, this was an amazing walk. They're in one mind. They're sharing one mind and one heart. But that one mind and that one heart doesn't mean that you're absent from problems. Can I get a witness of that? Just because we have unity means, you may, that's a, let's find unity and then we'll never have problems. Do you know unity also has problems? Amen? Because we're human. But in this unity, there is a giant elephant in the room. What does it mean if you say there's a giant elephant in the room? Talk to me. What does that mean? We got a what? We got a problem that everyone knows, but we're avoiding. There are two giant elephants in the room. Or at least a two-headed giant elephant in the room. You decide. And Peter has been praying and pouring over the Scripture and he finally addresses the silent problem that everyone is thinking but not talking about. Take a look at verses 15 through 20. And there's our elephant. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the 120 brothers and sisters and said, Folks, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold out of the mouth of David concerning Judas. What is Peter doing in the Old Testament? What in the world is he doing in the Old Testament? Old Testament's dead, amen? No! No, it's not dead. Without the Old Testament, we don't fully understand the New Testament. And gee, I'm getting ahead of myself. Who had become a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for it was counted among us and received a share of the ministry, for it is written in the book of Psalms. Now he's in Psalms. He was just in 2 Samuel. Now he's in Psalms. Let the homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Here are the problems. All right? The first elephant or problem in the room that must be addressed is how do we explain and cope with the betrayal of Judas? What do we do with Judas? Who, by the way, left us, betrayed Jesus, betrayed him with a kiss, took blood money, and then committed suicide. Which, by the way, suicide in first century Israel within Jewish culture was one of the most worst, was the worst sin imaginable. Can you imagine what this did to the credibility of this group? Can you imagine what this did to the integrity to those who were looking in? Imagine if I said, oh, we got a great Bible study. It's going to transform your life. We're seeing Jesus. And one of us left our group, condemned us, and committed suicide. Little, little black eye on the, on the, on the effort there. Now, on top of the suicide betrayal, on top of that, we have another elephant in the room. Jesus made a promise during his earthly ministry that the twelve apostles would inherit twelve thrones when he returned. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 18, 19 and Luke chapter 22. So how do you reconcile that there's only eleven of us when Jesus promised twelve and one of them committed suicide? Now this is beautiful. And here's a question I want you to answer this, okay? Remember what Jesus just spent 40 days doing. Jesus walked through the Old Testament teaching these men to interpret the Old Testament. There it is, Christologically. How all the, 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 the law and the prophets and the wisdom literature all pointed concerning Jesus Christ. We find that in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. So Peter starts doing just that. Oh, that we would just do that when we open Scriptures. You want to know why we tell kids about the ark? You want to know why we teach them about the serpent lifted up in the wilderness and all of these childhood stories? Because when we get done, we want to ask our children, what does this say about Jesus Christ? Peter thinks through the Old Testament Scriptures the way Jesus has taught him the last 40 days, and it hits him. He has an epiphany. And he stands up right there. The elephant in the room. The betrayal and the apostasy and the suicide and the 11 men for 12 thrones like Jesus promised. It's not an elephant at all. It's nothing more than an itty-bitty little mouse that the Scriptures can erase. And when he realizes that the Old Testament is literally verifying what has happened, he stands up in excitement. And Peter says this. He stands up and says, Brethren, 
Now that word there is written in the Greek in such a way that it could say, brothers and sisters, because we know there's a mixed group there. The scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David. He starts at 2 Samuel. Judas' betrayal and death is not a problem. It's actually a gift. It's a sign that Jesus is who He says He is. We don't need to shy away from the fact that one out of twelve betrayed Jesus as though it was a black eye to our cause. Because in in reality, it affirms our cause. Now I want to stop right there. If you were not aware of Scriptures at this point, that would sound like some straight-up, hardcore Washington, D.C. spin. Would it not? Oh, his betrayal and suicide is actually a good thing. It's like when our elected leaders say, stand up and go, this is going on exactly the way we expected it would. How many here go, are we nuts? Now, with that in mind, you can see many in the room thinking, how in the world does this betrayal, suicide of one of Jesus' own being one shy of God's promise of thrones with the, uh, be, uh, 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 when He returns. How can that be a gift? I think thou spinneth too muchest. That's my King James. Now, Peter gives a reason. He reaches back to the Scripture memorization he had as he grew up in Awana. I mean, in the synagogue. How many here remember the verses you learned in Awana? but for the life of you could not memorize a verse today. Anyone at all? Everything I memorized in Awana, which was in the King James, all right, I've got. And then I try to memorize verses today and I get like two hours later and I'm like, oh, what was that? Fortunately, I live it out to perfection. However, I'm joking. Peter reaches back. He reaches back. And, and he summarizes Psalms. Look at this. For it is written in the book of Psalms. What is he doing? Looking at Christ in the Old Testament. Concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Judas's betrayal of Jesus is foreshadowed in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23. It's also written about in Psalms chapter 55. You see, David, who foreshadows the person of Jesus Christ, the Davidic throne... David, all right, who foreshadows Jesus Christ, had a very close friend named Ahithophel, who, by the way, betrayed David and committed suicide. Jesus had a very close friend named Judas, who betrayed him and committed suicide. You see it, church? The Old Old Testament scriptures interpreted through the lens of Christology. This betrayal does not hurt Jesus or integrity. It confirms them. And then Peter goes in for the, for the, for the final slam dunk. He's not done. He's not saying not what happened to Judas is a, is a reflection of what happened to David and it confirms us. He goes a little bit further and he starts quoting, uh, Psalms chapter 69 verse 25. Let the homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. This certainly describes Judas's fate, does it not? No one wanted anything to do with Judas, not even the enemies of Jesus Christ. The Sanhedrin who gave Judas silver to betray Jesus, betrayed Jesus. They didn't even want anything to do with Judas or his money because it was blood money. They didn't want to be guilty of blood money, even though they were the very ones who provided the blood money. Oh, how we can academize and categorize our, our sin as we call ourselves walking with Christ and God. The Sanhedrin wanted nothing to do with it. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 27. They had nothing to do with Judas or his money. In fact, they took the money that Judas threw on the ground. They took the money and they bought a field with it and they called it Hakeldama, which means field of blood, because it was purchased with blood money. It's just laid desolate. Now, then Peter, in his excitement, quotes Psalms 109 which is a prayer about David and what to do when evil men betray him. And David says, when that evil man is judged, let him come forth guilty and let another man take his office. Can you see Peter's excitement? We're almost done. You see Peter's excitement? His eyes wide and full of understanding. All that has happened, these elephants in the room, fulfill Scripture concerning Jesus And with this, Peter, through the Old Testament, sees what is happening. The betrayal of Jesus was the fulfillment of what what they needed to do 
And what they needed to do is let another man take his office, bringing the number back to 12, which represents the whole nation of Israel and fulfills the promise that the 12 would sit in judgment in the kingdom of God. So with all of that, we just say, wow, okay, Old Testament points this out. So that's a lot of heady knowledge. I understand that. You can go, okay, this is a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, just interpreting issues. So let's apply it here in these next few verses. So they put forward two men because David said in Psalms as a foreshadow being interpreted Christologically, let's put forward two men, Joseph called Bersabbas and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord know the hearts of all men, which one of these you should have occupy the ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them and it fell on Matthias and he was added to the 12th position. Now, to be clear, Judas is not being replaced because he died. When they were martyred, when these men were martyred, they were not replaced. The apostleship in scriptures ended at the death of these twelve and the apostle Paul. All right? But they are replacing him because he became apostate. He was a traitor. Matthias was qualified to be an apostle because he had been with them from the beginning. He witnessed Jesus' ministry. He saw the death and the resurrection. The name Matthias, by the way, means gift of God. And according to the historian Eusebius, was among the 70 other disciples that followed around with Christ. In history, hints to the fact that, that Matthias died a martyr in Ethiopia when he was killed by the hands of cannibals. Now, Scripture doesn't say that. That's just a little bit of history there. So here's a practical note I want you to grab here. Well, clearly Matthias was called by God. All right? It was clear. His calling was also affirmed by those around him. We see the prenatal church starting to emerge here. All right? He's not called like a prophet or anything like that. He is called by God, but he's also called by those around him. In fact, it says right here, so they put forward two men. Two men out of 120 people in the room The words called by God, if I could, just a very short application here, is a term that is often abused in the church today. It is abused in the church today. A lot of times we say it void of context, filled with some obscure mystical knowledge or otherworldliness. People will just say, God has called me! And it's used as though it's some sort of trump card or billy club to force the church into an area that that this person wants to go. And no one is allowed to question. No one is allowed to agree with, with it. God has called me and we all have to stand down. He has the call. He wants to be, God has called him to be in charge of the bus ministry. It doesn't matter that he has seven DUIs, that his license has been revoked, and he's legally blind. God has called him, and we all have to stand down. Who are we to question the call of God in someone's life? Here it is. We are the church. We are the pride of the living God. This phrase can be abused because of self-deceit or ambition. There was once a lady that you may or may not know by the name of Carol Trim. Carol Trim, are you in here? Carol Trim. Carol Trim is in here. I asked permission to use this story. Was it in high school or college, Carol? High school. In high school, a young man came up to Carol Trim and said, God has made it clear to me All right, God has made the call clear to me that we are supposed to date and get married. Now, how many here have ever used that line in the church? Anyone at all? That's what I used on Amy. All right, no. God has called me to date and marry you. Now, how many here know Carol and that she's humble? She really doesn't know have a lot to say. Very has no opinions whatsoever. Everyone agree with that? Amen. Amen. (laughs) You better say amen, or she will crush you. Okay? No, I'm teasing. (laughs) So Carol, without missing a beat, says something like this. Said, that's funny because I pray too. And God has never placed that call on my heart. And until God places that call on my heart, we will not be dating. And she walked away. Mic drop, boom. (laughs) 
Now, what you don't know is that was Bob Trim who said those words. No, I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. I want to speak into this practically from New Testament example in teaching. Unless you have seen the resurrected Savior and He has called you by name, be humble about the phrase, God has called me. Be humble. One of the most significant ways your calling is affirmed within the New Testament are do the believers who know you affirm that call? Do they affirm that call? Matthias' call is confirmed not only by God, but by those around him. If you are claiming the God, the call of God to do something, and every spirit-filled believer around you is staring at the ground, remaining silent, and sweating profusely at the thought of being under your care and teaching, and everyone is looking out at each other through the side of their eyes when you're not looking. How many here, you can picture that? Have you ever done that before? Someone's talking to you and they finally look away, and you look at your neighbor like, oh my God, you're going to help me here. You know, if that's going on, you might want to revisit that. You might want to revisit that. And with that revelation, Psalms being unpacked, we have to replace the office. With that revelation from the mouth of Peter, the fulfillment of Scripture Christologically from the Old Testament, and with the promise of the Holy Spirit to come, these followers of Jesus Christ are filled with awe and they are filled with excitement. We see this, that not only are they meeting together in the upper room, sometimes we get this idea that they are in this upper room constantly, 120-ish, you know, fluctuating based on whether they need some food or stuff, but they all just huddle into the room and they, they never leave is not what the Scriptures say. In fact, if we look at... At, at Luke chapter 24, verse 52, it says that when they returned to Jerusalem, they were filled with joy and they continually met in the temple praising God. So there's a whole host of things they're doing here. They're meeting in the upper room. They're praying. They're in one mind and of one heart. And then they, they spill out of the room and they walk the streets of Jerusalem worshiping God. And they go into the temple and they, and they sing and they tell repentance of sins. Do you see it? The prenatal church is in its last trimester. You can see the church kicking against the membrane of the New Testament. Contractions are frequent. Just days from now, the church will be birthed out on Pentecost with the impartation of the Holy Spirit. And as we peer into the pre-born church like a little baby with an ultrasound, we can see that all of the features are in place and it's just waiting to be birthed. Do you see its features? Features that will be matured through the rest of the New Testament. They are constantly gathering together. They are not forsaking the assembly. They are operating in obedience to Jesus Christ. They are unified in prayer. They have a plurality of leadership within the twelve and Peter as their leader who is teaching the assembly Scriptures Christologically to be proclaimed by the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, do you see the church is all set to be born? It has all ten fingers and all ten toes. It has a beating heart. All of its organs, its eyes, it's it's ready to go. In time after time, day after day, they pray and they study until they spill out onto the streets and go to the temple and praise God publicly, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, surely their feet must have never hit the ground. Do ours? They have gone from dead in their sin, nobodies in Galilee, with nothing in common. I mean, nothing in common. You think, you think the fishermen, you think Peter had a good relationship with Matthew? An alarm ought to go off when we say, I'm not going there because I don't have anything in common with those people. You better want to check your heart. You might share Christ. They've gone from dead in their sin to nobodies with nothing in common to having all those differences evaporate in the searing heat of knowing Jesus Christ. And now they will become the bride of the one and the only Son of the living God. O church, are we not in many ways the same as them right then? We are not the apostles, nor shall we ever be. 
We are, however, what they are about to become, and that is the church. And because of that, we share much in common. We too were born dead in our sins. We too are nobodies scattered with no hope of salvation. We as a people have very little in common. If it were not for Christ, how many of us would know each other's names and what purpose in our lives would we share? What truth would show us a way? Yet praise be to God that all changed when each and every one of us had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and we sit here today. We sit here not because we share hobbies in common, but because we share Christ. We seek unity not because there are no differences, but because Christ is greater than all of our differences. We gather together not because we want to be entertained, but because Christ is important. We open His Word not merely to have a better life, but because we want to know Christ. And we leave here with good news to bring because Jesus Christ is the King. And and as these truths burn in our hearts, Shall we not spill into the streets and proclaim amazing grace? Amazing grace. I was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. Oh, praise Jesus to Him. Be all the victory. Amen? Not our agenda. Not our positions. Not our desires. Not our preferred ministries. But may Christ be elevated. Now, Here's the question. Why are you here? Why am I here? The elephant here, the answer must increasingly be we are here for Christ. Don't ever let me be the reason you come to Trinity. Never! It may be the reason why you begin to come to Trinity, but oh, by the grace of God, that we would grow, that it has nothing to do with me, it has nothing to do with them, it has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Years ago, I had a a gentleman come up to me and he goes, I want you to know, he said this to me, the only reason we're at Trinity is because of you and Amy. So I tried to fit my head out through the door. (laughs) And I said to him, can I speak into that? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, that's horrible. You ought to be here because you value Jesus Christ. His people. And if you're here because of me, you will leave because of me. Christ has to be Supreme. Not your small group. We just have the best small group. Good. I'm happy. But guess what's going to happen to that small group? Anyone? Are you going to live forever? You all going to agree forever? Anyone at all? What's going to happen to your small group? What has happened to every small group you've ever been a part of? Talk to me. (laughs) What's that? It disperses. Oh, but we sing these songs. Guess what? That's going to change. And the pastor, he's going to change. Oh, but the version is going to change. In fact, all things change except what? Talk to me. Christ, be here. Be Be here. Because of Christ. The church is not a service provider. God, forgive us. Who is it we have broken fellowship with? Why would we ever forsake the assembly? Do you know Christ more today than you did when you came in? Do you hold this book right here and say about Christ, I want some more, I want some more. And with that, the elephant in the room is gone. God's Word held the answers Christologically. It was there the whole time. Church, God's Word holds all the answers still today. The contractions 
are getting closer and closer together. In fact, next week, the Holy Spirit will come as promised. The Pentecost will happen. And the fire that represents God's presence, the fire that laid over the tabernacle in the wilderness in the Old Testament, will now lay over every believer in that room and be filled. Oh, do we not see the plan of God in the Old Testament coming true in the New You see, the birthplace of the church was in Jerusalem. And thousands of people will witness its delivery. And you are part of that delivery right now, today. Be who you were born to be. Be the church. Be the church. If you are known for one thing in the world, let it not be your hobbies or how good you are at sports. Let it not be your political positions. Oh, may it be that you are passionately a child of the living God and part of His bride. And nothing compares to that. Remember who you are. Remember why you breathe. Remember who you belong to. And in that unity, spill into the streets, being witnesses of Jesus Christ. Did you know our unity with one another is a reflection of how well we know Christ? Not how right you are, but how well we know Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. May we be of one mind and one heart, not because we agree on everything. Lord knows we don't. But may we be of one mind and one heart because we spend a lot of time with you. And the one thing we share in common is your son, Jesus Christ. Father, may it be true of this church that we are here primarily above all else because of the value of your Son. Father, dismiss us with our bless- your blessing. May our, may our fellowship at the picnic or in the pew or in the seats, may it be redemptive. May we talk about your Son. May we talk about our walk with one another and with you because, Father, absent from that, every single one of us didn't make it to church today. May we be beautiful and purposeful in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.